Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Harry Houdini. Now let's get started with our story about Harry Houdini. Few personalities have achieved the worldwide fame and popularity of Harry Houdini. Successful in several different media ranging from vaudeville to motion pictures, this performer was also an astute businessman who incorporated both groundbreaking copyright implementation and sensational publicity to establish himself as one of the first 20th century entertainment superstars. Initially performing card tricks in small, obscure sideshows, it took almost a decade before Houdini began to attract attention as an escape artist and magician. Beginning with handcuffs and increasingly elaborate devices that included a padlocked milk can filled with water and the unique Chinese water torture cell, an elaborately designed set of restraints surrounded by a large glass tank also filled with water. The showman eventually routinely appeared before huge crowds, restrained in a straitjacket secured by layers of handcuffs, chains, locks, and various other impediments, with the additional hazard of jumping into a river or hanging upside down from a crane or tall building, emerging from these impediments in full view of thousands of spectators. Known for his remarkable physical strength and pain tolerance, these impressive traits contributed to Houdini's premature death on Halloween 1926 at the age of 52. Harry Houdini was born Eric Weitz in Budapest, Hungary on March 24, 1874. One of eight siblings or half-siblings, Eric's father, Meyer Weitz, in 1876, emigrated from Hungary to the United States at the age of 47. He left his second wife, a first was already deceased, and five mostly young children, as well as a teenager from his first marriage, behind. His intent was to find gainful employment in the New World before sending for the rest of his family, a not uncommon process in late 19th century America. The Whites family was Jewish, and Meyer Whites was an educated individual who found a congregation willing to employ him in the rapidly growing town of Appleton, Wisconsin. While much of Harry Houdini's childhood and early life is either unknown or the subject of legend, his father's actual occupational history, especially in Europe, is completely unsubstantiated. Some accounts indicate that his ability to serve as the rabbi of the small congregation in Appleton was the result of Meyer Weitz's ability to convince these folks of his competence and no real relevant past employment. Initially based on his fluency in German, Hungarian, Hebrew, and his learned and dignified presence, the rabbi was greatly respected by his newfound flock. In July 1878, his dislocated family endured the grueling 15-day voyage in the least expensive steerage class of a transatlantic steamer, first reaching New York where they stayed with relatives and in September making their way to Appleton. Somewhere along the way, whether it was the result of immigration officials or the Weitzes themselves, the family surname was changed to Weiss, an S substituted for Z, a more anglicized identity. Eventually, some of Meyer Weiss's quirks began to alienate his congregation, including his practice of speaking and conducting his services in German instead of English, and his age already pushing 50 rather old for the time period. This combination 
must have graded because in 1881 he was replaced and whatever meager livelihood he maintained was severed. His second wife and Eric's mother, Cecilia, gave birth to two more children while the couple lived in Appleton, adding to the family's considerable economic insecurity. Weiss Sr. then moved his family to Milwaukee, where he scraped by in his earnings from a Hebrew school he opened and modest handouts from a local Jewish charity. Life took an even harsher turn when the rabbi's eldest son, Herman, died from tuberculosis in 1885, only 22. Typically, Eric chipped in with money hustled delivering newspapers and shining shoes. Things became desperate enough that it was eventually decided that New York City might provide better opportunities. And by 1888, the entire family was living in a modest tenement house on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. No longer even attempting to persevere as a rabbi, Meyerweiss now took any employment he could get, mostly as an unsophisticated laborer in the garment industry. His son Eric was also a scrapper who took jobs as a messenger and in the small industrial shops that proliferated throughout the city. As a teenager, Eric Weiss also excelled at long-distance running and boxing, training by jogging in nearby Central Park. Still, it was a typically bleak existence, which became even bleaker in October of 1895 when Meyer Weiss died of cancer. Among the many legends surrounding Harry Houdini's humble origin is his father's deathbed plea that Eric, already perceived as the most enterprising member of the family, made sure to provide for Eric's mother, Cecilia, and to promise that her needs be taken care of for as long as she lived. Eric is said to have agreed, and now it was up to him to respond with some meaningful means of supplying the Weiss clan with some income. At some point during his childhood, Eric Weiss became completely infatuated with the concept of performing in the circuses and carnivals that already barnstormed through Midwestern towns like Appleton and Milwaukee. As a child, he dressed in long socks and mimicked the trapeze artists that he occasionally observed when his father was able to indulge him with a trip to the circus. By age 19, Eric was performing at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago, a World's Fair that featured an extensive carnival midway. The teenager billed as one half of the magic act, the Brothers Houdini. The Houdini name was an homage to one of the pioneers of the modern stage magic act, Jean-Eugene Robert Houdin. Eri was Eric Weiss's family nickname, and this soon metamorphosized into Harry, and suddenly a stage moniker, Harry Houdini, came to be. However, the 19-year-old was anything but an overnight success. He first paired himself with an acquaintance factory co-worker and briefly with two of his brothers, most notably his younger brother Theo, nicknamed Dash from his middle name of Dizo. Eventually, Dash would strike out successfully on his own, performing as Hardeen, but Harry Houdini's co-performer by then was Wilhelmina Beatrice Rahner, nicknamed Bess, who also became Houdini's wife in mid-1894. Bess came from a German Catholic background, an unusual union within such a devoutly Jewish family. All of the relatives eventually accepted the marriage, and Bess became an integral part of Houdini's act. Still, eking out a living, touring in small-town America in second-rate theaters and so-called dime museums, which were really nothing more than a storefront collection of carnival freaks and other oddities, and a popular diversion in the late 19th century, was not a particularly glamorous lifestyle. At this point, much of Harry Houdini's act consisted of commonplace card tricks and similar sleight of hand, but the climax of his performance was an impressive exchange involving Houdini, initially enveloped in a large canvas sack, with his wrist tied, locked in a steamer trunk, and then placed inside an even larger cabinet. Standing inside the cabinet, Bess would announce that the audience should pay close attention when she clapped her hands and then closed the curtain, the woman in the cabinet disappearing behind it. Within seconds after Bess supposedly clapped three times, the curtain opened, revealing Houdini, now standing in the cabinet next to the trunk, which was quickly accessed, 
with Bess confined in the identical sack and binding which previously restrained her husband. So impressive was this trick, called the metamorphosis, that Harry and Bess actually got some newspaper publicity after a two-week booking in a small New York City venue. How did this illusion, impressive even in such drab and ordinary surroundings, actually work? The real trick was the remarkable rapid timing and specially constructed devices Houdini incorporated into this maneuver. First, although Houdini's hands were bound, these bindings were not particularly tight. By the time the sack was pulled over him, his hands were already out of these knots. The rope around the top of the sack could also be loosened from the inside, allowing Houdini to be out before Bess even finished locking and strapping the trunk completely. By the time the curtain was closed, Houdini was making his way out of the trunk via a rear panel. It was Houdini who clapped three times, Bess already getting back inside the trunk and pulling the bag over herself. By the time the trunk was opened, she was situated inside, the result of repetitive practice, not magic. Houdini became successful enough to scrape together enough funds to purchase 50% of a touring burlesque review that featured the typically scantily clad performers of the medium and concluded with Houdini's cabinet trick. All this venture left the couple with were debts that forced their participation with a magic show called the Marco Company that toured the Canadian provinces. When this entity inevitably folded, it was onto a six-month gig with the Welsh Brothers, a fairly reputable and at least solvent circus enterprise. But by October of 1898, both Bess and Harry were exhausted and ready to give up on touring. They headed back to New York, to Harry's mother's house, to figure out their next move. While the couple mulled over how to support themselves upon show business retirement, Harry fulfilled some final dates he had contracted for in early 1899. One such engagement occurred in St. Paul, Minnesota, at an establishment called the Palm Garden. When some live entertainment industry-related individuals showed up, one of them, a man named Martin Beck, challenged Houdini with a pair of handcuffs and dared the performer to try and escape from them. Houdini not only easily escaped these cuffs, he successfully got out of several additional pairs when Beck returned with them the next night. Impressed, Beck, an influential booking agent who contracted talent across the U.S., made the magician an offer, sending a telegram on March 14, 1899, that read, You can open Omaha March 26th, $60. We'll see act. We'll probably make you proposition for all next season. Beck was Major League Vaudeville and in the process of assembling the Orpheum Circuit, an organization that eventually leased or had access to every major auditorium and theater in America. Vaudeville was a giant step up from the sleazy burlesque houses and dime store museums that were Houdini's venues in his early career. It was the major opportunity that Houdini needed to break out in the entertainment business. Although Beck earned a sizable percentage from Houdini's salary, the contract that the magician signed in April of 1899 called for salary increases on a scale that eventually reached $250 a week. Because Beck worked out of his home base, the Orpheum Opera House in San Francisco, he also began the custom of paying traveling expenses for his contracted performers, a necessity to lure talent to the West Coast. Beck also took a personal interest in Houdini's career and promised Harry that if he followed his manager's direction, the artist would be very successful. The agent believed that Harry Houdini should improve the common card and sleight-of-hand tricks that were common and also focus on escapes, a skill that the performer seemed to have a penchant for. Houdini took this advice to heart and immediately came up with spectacular additions to his repertoire. One of the most startling was a new take on the needle-swallowing trick, in which the performer seemed to actually chew and ingest numerous sewing needles. To add extra tension, Houdini invited a small group on stage to ascertain that his mouth did in fact contain these sharp implements and that he apparently swallowed these objects. Houdini then took out some thin white cord, which he began swallowing until only a small amount of the cord was visible in his throat. He also took a drink of water to further the illusion, 
finally, in the bright illumination on stage and within the vicinity of the assembled witnesses, he slowly removed the end of the string, seemingly from his throat, the identical needles now tied by the cord and revealed one by one, usually about 25 in total. The deception in this case was actually simple. Houdini already had a packet of threaded needles secreted in his cheek before the trick even started. When he had spectators look into his mouth, he spread his lips apart from his gums with his fingers, hiding the needle packet with one of his digits. After placing the loose needles and thread on his tongue, he spat those out into the glass of water, quickly handing the glass to an assistant. To garner publicity, Houdini now started to promote himself by slipping handcuffs in police stations after a meticulous search by detectives. In San Francisco, he stripped down to a veritable loincloth to illustrate that he could not possibly be concealing a key or lockpick. Then police restrained him with at least ten of their own pairs of handcuffs, even going so far as fastening ankle shackles to the wrists with an additional set of cuffs. Houdini was then lifted up and placed in a nearby closet, emerging minutes later with each set of handcuffs removed and now attached together, the magician still practically naked. Publicity photos of Houdini's scantily clad muscular frame, draped with all nature of restraints, became commonplace. Because he could not perform in such a risque costume, Houdini instead added the wardrobe obstacle of a straitjacket strapped over and under the numerous locks, cuffs, and metal restraints he typically employed. This became another of the performer's trademark routines. Within a year after signing on with Martin Beck, Harry Houdini emerged as one of vaudeville's most popular performers. His salary was raised to $400 a week, a typical annual income for many lower-middle-class Americans. He cleverly attempted to maintain an air of mystery about his origin and background, claiming despite his lengthy American residence to be of European origin, possibly to appear more exotic. Questions about how he pulled off his various tricks and escapes were always deflected by an assertion that if he revealed the secrets behind his antics, he would no longer have a livelihood. Having appeared throughout the U.S., Houdini then decided that Great Britain and Europe might be fertile ground for the magician. Initially, promised bookings in London and on the continent fell through, and the performer was forced to privately audition for C. Dundas Slater, the manager of the prestigious Alhambra Theatre. In the audience were journalists and even detectives from Scotland Yard, who were treated to a very polished presentation that included card tricks, a trunk escape in conjunction with his wife, and several successes with handcuffs brought by members of the audience. Houdini now describing himself in handbills distributed to the public as the, quote, handcuff king. His impressive private show landed him an initial two-week booking, in July of 1900, which was so popular he was held over until the end of August. Houdini's desire to head for Britain and eventually Europe might have seemed inexplicable based on his runaway success in the U.S., but his already burgeoning ego, gripes about money, and the 20% commission he was paying to Martin Beck began to grate, precipitating a desire to get away from Beck's controlling influence, which Houdini now considered unnecessary. Beck constantly reminded him that it was he, Martin Beck, who plucked the performer out of obscurity and put him in the most prominent venues in America. This condescension only strengthened Houdini's desire to strike out on his own, and in July 1901, this confrontation came to a head with Houdini buying his way out of his contract for $500. To launch his British tours outside of London, Houdini attempted to escape from the Sheffield jail cell that once confined one of Britain's most notorious murderers and criminals, Charles Peace. The police triple-locked Houdini in his cell, took most of his clothes, and triple-locked him in another cell, on another cell block, that they also secured with another very complicated lock. Within five minutes, Houdini was not only out of his cell, he was back into his own clothes, a feat which was reported extensively throughout the British press. The subsequent tour of the British hinterlands was a box office success. 
While Houdini initially may have planned his British tour as a temporary digression to get out from under Martin Beck, his subsequent European expedition lasted four and a half years and included most of the major countries of Europe, including Russia. He promoted his shows in each location by utilizing the packing case escape, challenging any large department store or firm that typically utilized large wooden boxes to furnish such an enclosure for his show. These entities would also promote the show with their own advertising, boosting the box office to sell out crowds at double the normal admission prices. One such performance took place in Glasgow in September of 1904. Houdini was nailed inside of a large wooden packing crate provided by a local merchant, several representatives entering the venue, the 2,500-seat Zoo Hippodrome, in advance. When they observed that there was a trap door on the stage, they insisted that a platform be constructed to raise the box off of the ground. The news spread of the challenge facing Houdini, a massive sellout piled into the venue. Demand so fervent that temporary seats were placed on the stage. Those unable to enter the sold-out arena milled in the street, hoping to find out as quickly as possible if Houdini was successful. On stage, as an orchestra played, the crate itself determined to be a sturdy, normal enclosure with no hidden trapdoors or panels, stood alone on a raised wooden base. Houdini was lowered inside, the box nailed shut, and then roped with lines normally used to secure ferry boats. A circular cloth curtain was then placed completely around the entire setup, and the audience waited while the band played on. For 15 minutes, suspense built, and just as the orchestra was finishing up Hail Britannia, Houdini emerged from behind the curtain, disheveled but outside of the case, which was still on the platform and still intact, ropes still in place. The crowd was especially appreciative, actually carrying Houdini out of the theater on their shoulders and taking him all the way to his hotel. Although Houdini spent a great deal of time in Great Britain, he also appeared frequently throughout Germany, billed there also as Der König der Handschellen, the King of Handcuffs. In autocratic, authoritarian 1900 Germany, even entertainment and nightclub acts were meticulously scrutinized for anti-establishment content or conmen and charlatans, especially concerning mediums and fraudulent claims. Houdini was no exception, and he was subjected to an examination at the Central Berlin Police Station in September of 1900, in which he was stripped virtually naked in front of hundreds of policemen, fettered with all sorts of intricate restraints, and even had his mouth taped over, preventing this area from being used to hide keys or picks. He was allowed to attempt to extricate himself while under a blanket, removing all of the various impediments in approximately six minutes. He was not only granted permission to perform, he was officially complimented on stationery by the city's highest police official, who added that Houdini's successful escape was inexplicable. Despite this endorsement, Houdini remained a controversial figure in the country, so much so that he wound up embroiled in a Cologne courtroom battle in February of 1902, in which he sued a Cologne newspaper and a policeman for slander when it was claimed that his act was merely nothing more than collusion with bribed Confederates or the result of keys hidden by Houdini internally. This drawn-out affair basically boiled down to Houdini actually performing in the courtroom privately for the judge to duplicate his handcuff escapes, which he also did when the defendant appealed after losing the initial trial. Houdini not only received money for damages and a retraction from the Cologne newspaper, he also received invaluable publicity throughout the country for successfully defying law enforcement figures, a feat that was rarely even contemplated in such a repressive police state. Houdini also began to prompt imitators of all sorts, knockoffs that incorporated some close sobriquet like Coutini, Houdini, or Mordini. Whenever possible, Houdini appeared in the audience of such performers and demanded that they escape from locks he provided, brutally mocking any imitator who proved unworthy. 
this began the performance penchant for not only performing, but also debunking all sorts of similar acts, his method of eliminating competition and elevating himself as the greatest and most authentic of artists. So successful was Houdini in creating his unique persona that many, especially German publications, began to speculate that his process, exemplified by such tricks as metamorphosis, that he still regularly performed with Bess, could only be explained by Houdini possessing supernatural powers. Houdini's tireless interaction with all existing forms of media, mostly newspapers, was accompanied by a relentless distribution of handbills and posters announcing his upcoming presence in a particular city. These advertisements proclaimed all sorts of grandiose accomplishments, the biggest crowds, broken box office records, defeats of the German legal establishment, and the most sensational escapes in a blizzard of publicity meant to deliberately saturate any market with a relentless, omnipresent campaign. Such antics were quite successful. Having started in London at about $300 a week, Houdini now earned upwards of 1000 a week, occasionally earning even a higher weekly salary. But perhaps a holdover from his impoverished youth, Houdini, financially responsible for his mother, banked a lot of his earnings and chose to travel and live in an unostentatious and thrifty lifestyle. He did, however, purchase an impressive brownstone house in Harlem at 278 West 113th Street, which became the residence for his mother and sister and other members of his family, Houdini almost always on the road and unable himself to take advantage of this then fashionable neighborhood. Although Houdini actually preferred performing and living in Europe, homesickness and a long absence from his aging mother prompted him to return to the U.S. for what he thought was to be a brief stint of just a few weeks, but which ultimately turned into a lengthy Orpheum circuit tour that lasted for three years. So successful and affluent was Houdini at this point that he even discussed retirement in the near future, indicative of the amount of money he pocketed during his initial period of tremendous popularity. It had been five years since Houdini had performed before American audiences. Many patrons either had never seen him before or would be disappointed if he merely reiterated his previous act. To this end, Houdini began to incorporate an entirely novel component into his repertoire, water. He practiced both immersion in extremely cold temperatures and also holding his breath underwater for as long as possible. His wife timed him in the large bathtub in his Manhattan brownstone, and Houdini eventually went as far as dumping ice into the tub to simulate the coldest of temperatures, hardening himself to this inordinate condition. What resulted was one of his most famous tricks, the milk can escape, on stage, Houdini had audience members kick the four-foot-tall can to establish that it was in fact metallic and inflexible. The can was then filled with water while off stage, Houdini changed into a bathing suit. When he returned, he was handcuffed and placed inside of the can after telling the audience to hold their breath for as long as they could. Six hasps secured by locks, some even provided by spectators, were then secured and a screen was placed in front of the can, this process itself taking approximately a minute. Houdini's assistant, Franz Kukol, an Austrian hired while Houdini performed in Europe, stood by with an axe. The audience told that he was to break open the can if Houdini did not emerge in a set amount of time the Austrian's presence designed to add additional tension to the already potentially fatal undertaking. Houdini did employ a remarkable ability to hold his breath as a young man. He is said to have been able to do this for 3 minutes 45 seconds, but on a regular basis he was able to not breathe for about two and a half minutes, more than enough to take advantage of one aspect of his specially designed enclosure. The so-called milk can had rivets on it that were in fact fake. Although anyone examining the top of the can who tried to pull it off would not be able to do so, anyone inside the can could quickly and easily push the specially designed top part of the can off with the locks still in place, put the top back on, and in Houdini's case, easily slip out of his handcuffs. 
He typically emerged in about three minutes, soaking wet, but free of his cuffs, having seemingly defied death in an inexplicable manner. While this onstage trick employed a mechanical aid unknown to the audience, Houdini also began to incorporate a stunt that both greatly enhanced his reputation and did require tremendous physical skill and strength. To publicize commercial appearances, the escape artist also began the practice of jumping handcuffed from bridges spanning whatever river ran through the city where he was performing. On May 6, 1907, when Houdini jumped from a bridge in Rochester, New York, he also incorporated the new phenomenon of motion pictures, a two-minute clip of this exploit still easily found on the Internet today. Underwater for no more than 15 seconds, Houdini quickly emerged, holding the now-open restraints in the air. Not only was this particular jump witnessed by an estimated 10,000 spectators, Houdini cleverly was able to exhibit the film footage in subsequent performances in theaters and arenas, cutting-edge stuff in 1907. A subsequent jump in New Orleans included not only handcuffs, but chains wrapped around his limbs and padlocked at his throat. This required only about 30 seconds before Houdini emerged, holding all of the restraints triumphantly over his head as a transfixed audience of thousands watched from a Mississippi levee. Weather conditions also were circumvented, Houdini once jumping 25 feet off of Detroit's Belle Isle Bridge at the end of November into the freezing Detroit River. Similar successful jumps occurred into Pittsburgh's Allegheny and Boston's Charles Rivers, but the danger involved in these attempts was evidenced when a headfirst dive into the ocean from an Atlantic City pier in front of 20,000 people resulted in Houdini slamming his head into the ocean floor and almost breaking his neck. All of these escapades wound up routinely publicized on newspaper front pages all across America. He also continued with escapes from metropolitan police lockups that occurred in exotic locations that had maximum publicity value. In Washington, D.C., in January of 1906, he was placed in the former cell that confined presidential assassin Charles J. Guiteau within the murderer's row in the D.C.'s United States Jail. Stripped of his clothing and thoroughly searched, he was then placed in Guiteau's former cell, jail personnel leaving him there and returning to an exterior office. The cells were not only protected by sophisticated locks, they also featured a bar connected to the walls of the corridor. This bar also locked with a device that featured five tumblers and was unreachable from the inside of the cell. Houdini emerged in two minutes, but then added the extra twist of opening the cells of all of the confined criminals and persuading them to exchange positions within the row, extricating his clothing from another cell and presenting himself to the warden in his office in a total of 21 minutes. This warden, J.H. Harris, was so impressed that he provided Houdini with a written testimonial that described the escape in full detail. Houdini also seems to have maintained a sense of humor during this particular challenge. Asking one of the convicts why he was incarcerated, the man replied that he was a housebreaker and a burglar. To this, Houdini exclaimed, quote, you're a bad one, or you could get out of here, unquote. Always attempting to distance himself from imitators and even skilled competitors, which included his own brother Dash, a.k.a. Hardeen, Houdini continued the publicity gimmick of announcing that he would escape from any device, contraption, or situation presented independently to him by some external organization or commercial entity. A giant envelope furnished by a Chicago envelope company, the largest ever manufactured, a large football secured with chains brought on stage by the Penn football squad, and even a coffin, were just some of the items involved in spectacular challenges that Houdini successfully extricated himself from, usually in a matter of just a few minutes. In 1910, Houdini concluded an 18-month European tour and embarked for Australia, an undertaking that included a lengthy steamship voyage and a trip he previously claimed he would never endure. 
Perhaps he was deliberately distancing himself from criticism from both competitors and commentary in various journals devoted to the conjuring trade, labeled as an unsophisticated mercenary opportunist and a publicity-mad egomaniac, it was clear that his visibility and fame now made him a target within the industry. Houdini also received an offer from promoter Harry Rickards, who not only guaranteed 12 weeks of dates as well as paying him the same fee for, for time spent traveling down under approximately a month. Another motivator for Houdini to make the trip was his desire to become the first person ever to fly an airplane in Australia, a Voisin biplane recently purchased by the performer, also accompanying him on board the ship. As soon as he reached Australia, he began to publicize his intent to become the first aviator on Australian soil, spending his mornings at the hangar where the plane was stored while spending his evenings jumping off bridges and performing his act, mostly in Melbourne. On March 18th, he successfully completed a two-mile flight, reaching a height of 100 feet, the Melbourne press proclaiming him the first successful aviator in the history of the country. While other practically simultaneous attempts at flight at around this time eventually made this claim tenuous, considering the dangerously rudimentary aircraft he employed, this undertaking was actually as daring as anything Houdini ever attempted on stage. He continued to take to the air when his tour reached Sydney, windy conditions turning his flights into hair-raising, unpredictable spectacles in which Houdini almost crashed on several occasions and landed once with such force that he was thrown out of the aircraft. Eventually, the airplane was packed away, and in early May of 1910, Houdini returned to North America. Competitive to the point of insecurity, Houdini was forever irritated by the horde of imitators who performed many of the acts that he either originated or made famous. One particular former staple of Houdini's performances was the handcuff escape trick, which first got him attention and launched him from obscurity. But now in 1910, he publicly resolved to never perform this part of his act again, even advertising in print the phrase, no handcuffs maintaining that slipping cuffs was too easy. He even went so far as to publish a book entitled Handcuff Secrets with over 100 pages of illustrations, although he attempted to not diminish his own exploits by stating immodestly, I shall not delve into the very deep intricacies of some of the great modern feats of handcuff manipulations and jailbreaking as accomplished by myself. Houdini replaced the self-proclaimed mundane handcuff escapes with ever more elaborate and publicized underwater-themed container-driven feats. On July 7, 1912, he announced an attempt to escape from a wooden box after being placed inside, encumbered by several manacles and leg irons, some provided by the public, the box tossed into New York's East River. Despite a huge crowd mobbing the pier in the vicinity of of Houdini's large platform barge, police enforced some arcane Sunday blue laws against public performances, prompting Houdini's entourage to head for the federal jurisdiction of Governor's Island, his barge transported by tugboat. Here, the performer and his container were thoroughly examined by the press and other spectators. Then Houdini was shackled and placed into the wooden box. The container was 40 by 22 and 24 inches high only allowing Houdini to sit up, knees raised, against his chest. Quarter-inch holes allowed oxygen into the container, as usual for some of Houdini's more dramatic escape attempts. A motion picture crew was present to film the escapade. Once Houdini was inside, the lid was nailed shut, secured with additional ropes, and metal bands were also attached. To ensure that the box would not only partially sink, over 200 pounds of sash weights were also attached. Tossed into the harbor, the container, attached by a rope to prevent the tide from carrying it away, sank to a level just under the water, occasionally visibly bobbing up into view. It only took approximately a minute for Houdini to break the surface, appearing right next to the still-sunken contraption. By then, several ferry boats had made their way to the vicinity, spectators packing the decks, standing and cheering, while a few tugboats added a whistle. 
When Houdini climbed on board, the wooden box was retrieved from the water. It was still nailed shut, ropes and metal bands still intact. Inside, however, the shackles remained, their cuffs now opened. The New York press breathlessly reported accounts of the escape on the front page. Disappointed by police interference, Houdini repeated the stunt in 1914 off of Battery Park, this time in front of an estimated 100,000 people, including spectators gaping through skyscraper windows. Houdini escaped from the submerged wooden box in less than 50 seconds. The secret to what appeared to be an amazing and inexplicable stunt? The bottom two boards on one side of the specially constructed box were actually not nailed to the container, but a trap door, attached by hidden hinges. Only the top lid was nailed to the box in view of any spectators. Nail heads in the two boards were merely the tops of nails, allowing the boards to be opened. Houdini escaped from any restraints before the box was even thrown in the water activated the side hinge trap door, climbed out of the box, and then pulled it shut by pulling on one of the holes, getting the two boards back into place. Lest anyone conclude that Houdini's skill was strictly due to subterfuge, he developed another compelling nightclub-oriented performance that incorporated an outlandish impediment. Utilizing a so-called crazy crib, a bed used to restrain violently insane inmates in mental hospitals, Houdini was strapped down, his limbs, midsection, and even throat tied down with straps and a heavy collar. In full view of the audience, he then attempted to methodically escape from this device, a process that was agonizing just to watch, his hands and face turning bluish-red as he struggled to merely get one of his hands free. Even employing his teeth, he eventually got one and then both hands free, and then writhing like a reptile, he got off the collar. Next, the buckles that restrained his midriff and feet, and after approximately 30 minutes, he was entirely free, clearly the result of an esoteric skill, evidenced by the fact that his pants and shirt were literally ripped to shreds. A London newspaper described the audience's response to this performance as hysterical, an ovation and acknowledgement that lasted a full 10 minutes before the curtain was lowered and Houdini left the stage. Having received numerous challenges from various individuals incorporating Asian-themed restraining devices, Houdini wished to adapt these exotic components within the ultimate escape challenge. What resulted was the Chinese water torture cell, an elaborate specially constructed glass telephone booth-sized container into which Houdini was lowered headfirst, his feet locked into wooden stocks. But before he even performed this trick in front of a live audience, Houdini attempted to anticipate any of the inevitable copycats who might attempt something similar. Understanding that patents did nothing to stop any of his imitators, who merely slightly varied any devices or performances to circumvent such restrictions, he instead performed what he eventually described as a one-act play, which he called Houdini Upside Down. This performance deliberately took place in front of an audience of one individual, Houdini then able to copyright it and its contents, asserting that only he had the legal right to perform such a trick. Granted an official copyright by the Lord Chamberlain, entertainment managers were then formally notified of this legal perspective, warning them of consequences if this alleged intellectual property was infringed. Following this attempt at legal insulation, Houdini needed to assemble the elaborate equipment and preparation for the actual trick itself. Because the device required hundreds of gallons of water to fill up the cell, not only were large tubs required on stage, but a fire hose provided the large amount of liquid necessary. The plate glass, steel, and mahogany frame itself weighed three-quarters of a ton and also required replacement panes of glass in the event that one of the tempered half-inch panels broke, which happened on at least one occasion. An elaborate system of winches, pulleys, and ropes were also required to lift and deposit Houdini into the cell. When the act was first performed in Berlin on September 12, 1912, Houdini was accompanied on stage by three formally dressed assistants, four brass water containers, 
the water torture cell on top of a special waterproof tarpaulin and a gold-colored screen to be placed in front of this contraption as Houdini was placed inside, upside down. An axe was also situated nearby. Houdini announced that it was necessary in the event he failed and an assistant needed to smash the glass and prevent his death. He then lay down as his assistants, while some select members of the audience observed closely, affixed his ankles in mahogany stocks that closed over his feet. Slowly he was lifted into place and then lowered into the tank. Once he was fully immersed, the mahogany stocks, embedded in a square wooden lid, were locked against the sides of the tank with four hasps and padlocks. Houdini briefly visible, upside down, his hair swirling, cheeks puffed out as he held his breath, underwater. Then the large gold screen was placed in front of the tank, and the magician disappeared from view as the orchestra played a dark, dramatic tune. It took approximately two minutes before Houdini, soaking wet, made his appearance on stage. The screen was removed, revealing the intact water torture cell, the stocks in place and still locked to the top of the device. Newspaper accounts invariably used words like awe-inspiring, stunning, and even supernatural to describe the suspense, process, and ultimate reemergence of Houdini. The audience response so uniformly, emphatically enthusiastic that he kept the water torture cell escape in his act for the rest of his life. How did it work? Houdini did employ breathing techniques and acrobatic skill during this particular trick, but as usual, specially concealed gadgets secretly aided him. One of the reasons the cell cost over $10,000 was several unusual design features. The first involved the special stocks enclosing Houdini's feet. When these were locked in place by the hasps, they stretched just slightly enough to allow Houdini to push against the side of the tank, twist sideways, and pull his feet through the now larger holes in the stocks. He then pulled his knees into a tuck position, essentially rotated, getting his head upright, allowing him to take advantage of the second special design feature. When the stocks and wooden lid were lowered onto the cell, a small amount of water was displaced outside of the device. Once Houdini got himself out of the stocks, he could take breaths of air before getting out of the tank. The two boards of the stocks were hinged so that they could be pushed open. Once he extricated himself, Houdini merely put the stocks back in place, climbed down onto the stage, all of the hasps, padlocks, and stocks seemingly unmoved and intact. Although Houdini himself provided intense drama for his audience, he personally experienced one of the most dramatic moments of his own life when his mother, Cecilia, died on July 17, 1913. Although all such mother-son relationships are typically close, Houdini had an especially strong maternal bond. Having become a worldwide success, the rock that his family and especially his mother relied upon, and an attentive son who lived up to his vow to his dying father, Harry Houdini's interaction with his mother was a typically old-world relationship. Unlike his behavior with non-family members, which was egotistical, controlling, and financially ruthless, Houdini even described himself as a mama's boy. And it has been speculated that his entire career, and especially his death-defying stunts, were nothing more than an attempt to arouse approval, attention, but most importantly, Cecilia's concern. Upon receiving news of his mother's death while on tour in Copenhagen, Houdini fainted, Although it was against Jewish tradition, the family agreed to his request to delay the burial until he could make it back from Denmark. Subsequently, the usually workaholic Houdini canceled several months' worth of performances, although accounts claiming that he also began immediately attempting to communicate with his mother through the spirit world are untrue. His eventual attempts to debunk mediums who claim to have the ability to facilitate such communication seems to evolve later and not as a result of any failure to achieve such connection himself.
Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Harry Houdini. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Houdini, The Career of Eric Weiss by Kenneth Silverman and The Secret Life of Houdini by William Kalouche and Larry Sloman. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at our website. Time.